Conservative leadership contestant Pierre Poiliev has wound up an early frontrunner in the race to replace Aaron O'Toole. The famously combative MP has played up the fight for freedom as one of his key messages, but he has also given a lot of focus to an issue gaining traction across the country, housing affordability. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post columnist Chris Selly joins me to discuss why housing could be a winning issue for Poiliev, how he's differentiating himself from liberal housing policy, and how the race could change between now and September. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Chris, the standout candidate so far in the conservative leadership race, if you look at the polls and you look at who's getting a lot of attention, is Pierre Poiliev. Now, just kind of taking a, a top-down look, why do you suppose he's taken on the early frontrunner status in this race? Well, I think there's a bit of a vacuum there. I think there's a lot of pent up, just about, there's pent up everything, I think, after the last two years. And I think he's sort of tapped into that with this freedom message. And it's, you know, a lot of people roll their eyes at it. And it is in some ways fairly vague. Most of the freedoms that we've lost, we've already gotten back. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the same way people are you know ready to go to movies and concerts and stuff i think part of it is just that people are ready to go out and see a new political voice i, I think it, he generates his own momentum right people read about him in the paper and so more and more people want to go see him how that translates into votes you know we'll have to see it this is a long long race yeah. but uh, it feels to me like a post pandemic phenomenon even though a lot of the stuff he's talking about really doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic I do want to talk about the freedom message in a little bit, but one of the key issues early on that I've seen that's gotten a lot of traction is the issue of housing in Canada. What is it that he's pointing out as the problem and how does he think he can fix the issue? Well, I, I think it was hardly hiding. It was there in plain sight. I think he's very deftly picked up on it, you know, because housing prices have been soaring for five years, especially over the last two years and especially in Toronto and Vancouver, but not even that, in, in other communities in the Lower Mainland and in Southern Ontario, where people from Toronto and Vancouver are moving. Mm -hmm. So what he's pointing out, correctly in my view, is that the biggest obstacles to building more homes, both in terms of, you know, sort of tall towers and then, you know, intensifying single-family home neighborhoods with, you know, fourplexes or sixplexes, those lie in, at, at City Hall. Certainly here in Toronto, you know, <laughs> Toronto City Council is a group of mostly progressive people who are utterly beholden to single family homeowners and all the decisions they make reek of it. And the things they say reek of it. They'll say things like Toronto's built more houses in the last 10 years or whatever than just about anywhere in the world. And yet it's still unaffordable. So it's, you know, supplies, not the problem. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, of course, <laughs> supplies, the problem. Yeah how much do you think it would cost to live here if we hadn't built all those condos? So he's really tapped in. It's, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because those zoning rules live at the provincial level and at the municipal level. But here's a federal politician saying, well, look, we've spent tons of money, federal tax money on housing, and we're going to make that money. In fact, all infrastructure money is, he's saying, contingent on uh, municipalities loosening up zoning uh, and allowing more houses to be built. And you know, I've been kind of amazed at how many people I've seen crapping all over this idea. Like, it doesn't make sense. So it's a fantasy. It doesn't seem like a fantasy to me. Mm -hmm. I don't see why a conservative government wouldn't 
do this. It's not like they get a lot of votes in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver anyways. So I think it's a, a really interesting message that he's come up with. Why would it resonate with some people? And how could that help him with people who may otherwise see him as too far to the right? Does he see this as a play for people who might be like soft liberal voters or maybe kind of center right on the spectrum, but don't necessarily want to go all the way to the right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's it. It's, I, I was going to say class warfare, but, but not, not even really in a bad way. I mean, <laughs> the intergenerational discrepancies that just keep growing here from people who've been sitting on houses for 40 years. I mean, of course that's going to breed resentment. People who've been raised with this idea that they have a right to home ownership, which is something that Pierre Polyev says, which is of course not true. No one's ever had a right to home ownership, but that's what people have come to expect. And every party in Canada talks about home ownership as if it's the be all and end all, right? It's sort of, if you don't own a home, you're not, you're nothing, which I don't happen to agree with, but I think he's really effectively tapped into something that not only, you know, is it a big issue, but the other two parties, liberals and the Democrats really don't have answers at, at any level of government. In fact, arguably they're the biggest problem. I know that the liberals had tried to tap into some of this with their federal budget, this idea of like a, a savings account for people to buy their own homes. Why might Poiliev's strategy of making, you know, infrastructure funding tied to this idea of increasing housing supply play better than a new savings account for people? Well, I, th I think more and more people understand, and they're going to understand pretty quickly if they're actually on the property market, that anything you do to make it easier for people to buy houses in terms of tax advantages or savings accounts or whatever, what you're essentially doing is giving them more money. And if you give everyone more money, then the houses go up by exactly that amount of money. And so the same people are stuck just short of that bottom rung. It's just everything costs more. And that's what so many of the solutions that the liberals and new Democrats come up with is just, oh, we'll give people money. Now, giving people money can be a very effective tool, but not in a, in a situation like that, because it's just going to keep driving up prices. And I think people perceive that. And more and more, they kind of roll their eyes when the latest budget comes out and they, and they see there's more and more of that. Yeah. I think everyone perceives that it's a tough problem to solve. I mean, construction capacity, quite apart from anything else, but like, it's a simple problem. It's lack of supply and too much demand. Mm -hmm. And the solution is also simple, even if it's complex to implement, which is build more houses. And that's the very basic message he's trafficking in. And I think it's a good one. One thing I found interesting was the fact that there are people already in the housing market who decry the kind of housing choice he's suggesting is needed. And the people who already decry it when progressive city councillors propose it in less dense cities like Edmonton and Calgary. You know, I find it interesting that Poiliev is talking about, you know, basement suites or higher density on single family lots and, you know, possible changes to zoning and things like that. How does Poiliev address the concerns of these people who are already in the market and don't want to see the quote unquote character of their neighborhoods changing? Well, I mean, that's what's interesting is he's essentially saying tough you know, not that bluntly, but he was asked a couple of times at the press conference I was at in Toronto, that, that same basic question, like, what is your message to homeowners who have all this money sitting there? And he, you know, he had a line where he said like, well, when I talk to people, they want their 28 year old son to also be able to afford a home, which is sort of a good line. Although, you know, if you've owned a house in Toronto for 40 years, you could pretty much borrow enough to buy your son a, a whole new <laughs> condo somewhere. That's how much it's gone up. So 
it's an interesting calculation because as I say, the people who are most affected by it, those are not core conservative voters at all. Even in, you know, sort of what used to be called the suburbs in Toronto, but are now part of the city. Some of those ridings vote conservative and they are very nimby, but he seems to be willing to gamble on the fact that even homeowners see the problem in terms of sort of intergenerational wealth transfer or, or lack thereof. And that, you know, if it's going to cost him votes, it's not going to cost him very many in the right place. And maybe it gains him some votes among younger people, not necessarily downtown urbanites, but people who appreciate that he feels their basic concerns in a way that, that other politicians don't. We'll be right back. As he mentioned earlier, one of the other key messages that he's shopping around out there is around more freedom and eliminating the so-called gatekeepers who are controlling our lives. You were at a campaign stop in Toronto recently at the Steam Whistle Brewery. How does that message go over with the crowds in a place like Toronto? It was interesting. I mean, this was not just a group of people who'd come in on the GO train from the suburbs. There were a lot of people there who lived downtown either right downtown or, or sort of in the city center and, you know, defund the CBC. I mean, I guess that's not a freedom issue, but that got a huge applause line. Several people I spoke to are, are concerned about the Trudeau government's controlling speech on the internet agenda, mm -hmm. as I think they're right to be. And so that, that got a lot of applause. And, I, and I'm not sure how many of those people were concerned about that beforehand, or they started listening to Pierre Polyev and then they started looking at what the government's actually doing there and said, no, 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 no. Why are we doing this? We don't want that. I think it's a combination of him tapping into pre-existing angst and sort of suggesting to people that there's a different way for government to operate in a smaller, less intrusive way. And I think, the, you know, it might be a good tack at any point for a conservative politician, but especially with Trudeau and the liberals who just don't seem to understand that mindset at all. Like they, they just don't seem to understand the notion that people might think we should just leave the internet alone. Mm -hmm. He's tapped into something there, uh, demonstrably. And it's very interesting to watch, uh, that, that, a, that a downtown Toronto crowd, as you say, that you would think would be big government NDP liberal voters would be so interested, uh, even willing to listen to it. I did find it interesting. He's been drawing a lot of kind of big crowds, Toronto. You looked at Calgary and Edmonton, he drew some pretty sizable crowds, out in BC as well. What do you make of the argument that, well, it's easy to get angry people out to a rally and it may not be indicative of widespread support, but he has support among an angry bunch of people. There's no question that he is appealing to angry people as any politician should really, if you're talking about <laughs> basic socioeconomic, that kind of anger. I mean, I didn't see any angry people at that event in Toronto. I haven't been to any others. It strikes me that the, you know, the really angry people may have left the Conservative Party for good or for a good long while, and he may be trying to lure some of them back you know, with his support of the trucker convoy, which I think was ill-advised. I think he could have done it in a more subtle way that would have given him a little more plausible deniability, so he wouldn't have to kind of walk it back a little bit after he expressed his support. But I think he is appealing to angry people. Uh, I think that's definitely clear, but I, I think he's also very clearly appealing well beyond the angry person demographic. Gatekeepers is a word that he likes to use a lot. 
Do you find it odd that he's spoken out so much against gatekeepers controlling our lives, but he is on record as being a firm supporter of one of the biggest gatekeepers in Canada, and that's supply management in the dairy industry? I know it's not an issue that really grabs a lot of people's attention, but one of his opponents, Scott Aitchison, is making a big deal about it being a Pierre Trudeau program and using that as one of his key issues. What do you make of Pierre Poiliev's support of that gatekeeper, but decrying all these others? Well, I mean, it's just baked into Canadian politics now. It's (laughs) insane, but, you know, it is always surprising when anyone comes out against it. I mean, after Maxime Bernier, I wasn't sure any leadership candidate would ever come out against it ever again. Uh, And Scott Ishton is, you know, by no means a front runner. You know, he's a very, very, very dark horse. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he clearly thinks that he needs to make a splash. And that makes a mighty splash in Canadian politics. So, yeah, I mean, (laughs) Pierre Polyev is not a consistent person like most politicians aren't. I mean, if you look at his stance on the railway blockades in 2019 near um, Kingston, Ontario, I mean, he was dead set against that. He wanted the cops to go in and enforce the injunctions. And then suddenly when there's people shutting down downtown Ottawa, he's all in support of them and, and charter rights and our sacred right to freedom. So, I mean, I, I am certainly not saying that he has any kind of coherent freedom message, but when it comes to supply management, that's just its own thing. It's taken on this myth that it's just impossible to do anything about it when clearly it is possible to do something about it. So I'm not surprised well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, you know, Maxine Bernier came very, very close to winning the party leadership, despite opposing supply management mm-hmm. and, and making a big deal out of it. So to me, that kind of proves right there that it's not the impossibility that so many people in Canadian politics think it is. Like, I, I think the dairy industry or the dairy lobby, I suspect its bite is worse than its bark, but no one ever gets to that point <laughs> because yeah. they're just terrified of it. So, I mean, it's never going away. You know, it makes a mockery of all kinds of politicians' platforms, not just Polyev's. I know it's early days in the leadership race. We have a sense who's running. You know, we have some more well-known candidates like Poiliev and former Quebec Premier Jean Charest, Mayor Patrick Brown, Leslin Lewis. What do you make of the race so far? Do we get a sense that the front runners are who they're going to be and there's still some wiggle room for people who may be trailing Poiliev in polls now to gain some ground, or is it still looking like it may be a cakewalk for him? I mean, it's a long time, right? The vote is September 10th. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder, can they really keep up? Like, can Poliev keep up this pace, quite apart from anything else, between now and September? I guess he can. As much as we don't know how those crowds for Poliev translate into votes in the leadership, I find it difficult to imagine either Jean Schreier or Patrick Brown really gathering that much steam, especially Patrick Brown. You know, I, I suspect Leslie Lewis will will wind up as the sort of social conservative standard bearer, and she might get a lot of support, but I don't see how she can win. I don't know. It's tough to imagine anyone beating him out, I think, mm-hmm. but then there's months and months to go. Yeah. So, and Jean Charest is a very good politician, uh, or he was. You'd like to see it coalesce, I think, into sort of a Charest versus Poliev versus Lewis. That's sort of a nice three-way battle for the party's soul, you know? <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't write off any of the reasonably big names, but boy, Poliev has come out guns blazing. It's just a matter, I guess, of, of can he sustain that? 
I do wonder though, there's always talk about, especially with the conservative movement in Canada, that we don't want to see the leadership candidates really go at each other too hard because it could create divisions within the party that are hard to repair. And then we'd get back to a whole thing like we did in the nineties with the reform party on one side and the PC party on the other side, and they hate each other and that, but is it better for the party that they actually go at it and debate some of these issues in a lively and confrontational way to kind of get a sense of who they are? Yeah, I think so. I mean, everyone's been saying like, oh, how this is so nasty, this leadership. I mean, it, doesn't, it seems pretty standard to me. You know, this this idea, oh, he's uh, is not a conservative, he's a liberal. I mean, yeah, it's dumb, but it's it's not like historically dumb. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, the, the, the answer is yes, it's absolutely better for the party to bash these things out in public because I'm not sure people want a political party that's just sort of a black box where everything happens inside it and as soon as anyone wins the leadership and everyone shuts up for four years uh until you know the knives come out the next time there's nothing going on here in this race to me that's so nasty that it's going to leave any kind of a lasting mark on the party in a negative way but they do need to figure out how they're going to win elections other than just when Canadians are sick to death of the liberals Mm -hmm. that is their big problem they can govern maybe seven or eight years out of every 20 but that's not what they want to do. And I think that's the larger question. If I was a conservative, which I'm not, a capital C conservative, I would wonder about Pierre Polyev as the best person to put out there to run for prime minister. But clearly he rubs some people the right way as much as he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Well, I know that the race is definitely going to heat up as we see leadership debates kick off in May and we'll see how the race goes over the summer. Chris, thanks for your time. Thank you. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Chris Selly. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.